You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis 18 because we're going to walk through it and I want you to see where it is because it comes between two really huge things. So in the 15 verses before that story that you just heard, uh, there is this promise of God. He's promising Abraham and Sarah a son. This is kind of part of the redemptive plan of God. And then after this scene, which you just heard read, there's the judgment of God. So sandwiched between these two huge things, God's promise of redemption and the coming judgment, is this little conversation between Abraham and God. It's the first recorded prayer in the Bible. And it strikes me as incredibly relevant to us. Here's Abraham in a very micro way living between the promise of redemption and the coming judgment. And we too live between the promise of final redemption and coming judgment. And faced with such immense realities, what else are you going to do but pray? Except that prayer is kind of a strange thing. Like if a child has an imaginary friend that they talk to, it's cute. But in time, you you want them to sort of grow out of that, right? But all you can do is wait, because you can't talk a kid out of his imaginary friend. Like if you go to a young child and you say, hey, let's talk about your imaginary friend, they're going to say he's real. They're like, no, okay, how how do you know he's real? And he'll say, because I talked to him. And you'll be like, well, look, just because you talked to him doesn't make him real, and then that's when it'll hit you. This must be how some people think about Christians and prayer, that it's just kind of strange. I have a good friend who is not a Christian. Uh, when he was in college, he got involved in a campus ministry. He was kind of appealed to, uh, he was drawn to the cause of what they were doing. But over time, uh, things took a turn. Like he became one of the leaders, but then when I had met him 15 years later, he was against the things of God. And here's what happened. He had a dream one night um, about a prayer chain. So this ministry had, this, had a prayer chain system in real life. So somebody would submit a prayer request to me. I had somebody I called, told them. They called somebody else, and it kind of spread like that. The idea was get a lot of people praying about something in a short amount of time. It's great. Well, my friend had a dream where this was happening. The prayer chain was, was going into code red. And he was like above it looking down on it, and he was seeing all the requests being passed along in his dream. And in his dream, he had this thought. Doesn't God already know all this? Whether they pass it along or not, isn't God aware of the need? And in his dream, he wondered, if that's the case, then why pray at all? And everything just felt really silly and contrived to him in that moment. He woke up, and the dream was still vivid in his mind, and he couldn't shake it. Not for 20 years, he couldn't shake it. That possibly, maybe even probably, Christianity was just kind of silly and contrived. Prayer is a strange thing. Some of you, I'd say many of you, probably struggle with prayer in some way. For some of you, it is like my friend. It's theological. Like you just, you want to know how the whole thing works. I mean, if God is sovereign, then why do we pray? For some of you, it's not theological. It's, it's really more practical. You believe in prayer. You want to pray. But just the reality of your life is that you don't that much. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Me, uh, my reason is I tend to just be really self-reliant. 
I wouldn't answer that way on a, on a test, but the functional belief in my life is that I got this. Right? When there's a need or when there, I, I pride myself in being resourceful and being able to figure it out. And we see a lot of that in Abraham, don't we? Taking matters into his own hands, not consulting God, just charging out. Abraham is really self-reliant sometimes. But in Genesis 18, he's different because here he's praying. There's a lot that we can learn from this text, but here's just kind of the big idea that I want you to see. I want you to see that prayer pulls us in. Pulls us in. We get so distracted, so off course. Todd mentioned it. There are so many things vying for our attention to pull us away, but prayer pulls us in pulls us into the plans of God, pulls us into the heart of God, pulls us into the work of God. That's what we're going to see today. Let's talk about that first thing, that prayer pulls us into the plans of God. We are hardwired to live our lives for purpose. It's just in all of us. God put it there. We want to give ourselves to something bigger than our lives. We want to make an impact. We want to leave a legacy. The problem is, is that we're just busy. Uh, we get so preoccupied with just our little world and all the stuff that's going on, and it's all good stuff, but it kind of makes us orbit around ourselves a little bit. And what we need is for something to wake us up, to pull us out of that rut, and prayer does that in many ways. Have you ever, uh, have you ever come to God with a request or a desire, and in praying about it, you just found over time that he changed the request or the desire, and later you were able to see how he set you on a different course, and now it's clear why he did that. Anybody ever come to mind randomly, and you just, you know what, I'm just going to pray for that person. So you just pray for them. Might not even be somebody you've talked to or seen in a long time, and then over time, God intersects you with their life, and you realize that's what God was up to. He was putting me on a course for this person's life. Prayer has a way of pulling us out of ourselves and into the plans of God. He does it in lots of ways, and this is what's happening to Abraham. So you remember, last week we looked at this, God has just come to visit Abraham. It's three men, but we find out that one of them is the Lord, two of them are angels, and they've come to Abraham and Sarah, they've promised them, I'm going to come back in a year, and when I do, uh, you'll have a son. God says it out loud, and Sarah, who's listening in from inside, she laughs in unbelief. God confronts her laughter, her cynicism. She tries to backpedal. She's like, no, 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 I didn't laugh. And God says, no, but you did. Cut scene. That's it. That's the end of the scene. And you get this mental note. Okay, don't mess with God. Don't try to hide your stuff. Don't try to cover your tracks with God. He, he sees and he knows. And it's actually that reality that transitions us into this next scene in a much heavier way. Starting in verse 16. Look there with me. Then the men, remember this is the Lord and the two angels, set out from there, from Abraham's tent, and they looked down towards Sodom. And God is looking down towards Sodom, and you see in a few verses what he sees. He sees that their sin is very grave. Now, as God is standing, looking down over the Jordan Valley towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's contemplating what's about to happen, which is that these cities are going to be judged because their sin is very grave. He begins to have this conversation out loud with himself again. 
The first time it was so Sarah that might overhear, but this time it's so Abraham can overhear. And he says to himself, shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Why would you do that if you're God? It's kind of like when, when someone says to you, hey, I've got this thing, I don't know if I should tell you. you know, well, then why'd you say that? Like, now you have to tell me. Right? The reason they said, I got this thing, I don't know if I should, is because they want to tell you. And so the reason God says, should I tell Abraham about this thing is because he wants to tell him. He wants to pull Abraham into his plans, and he does. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, okay, I'm going to tell him, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now that should strike you as a little strange too. Why does God have to go down there? Isn't God omniscient? Isn't he everywhere? Doesn't he know everything? Yeah. So why does he say this? Well, one reason is he's talking to a person, a man, Abraham. And so he's using terms that would help Abraham understand what's going on. He says, I will go down. In other words, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll take a full assessment. He wants Abraham to know that if this thing happens, if I judge these cities because of their sin, it will be because of true and thorough and accurate information. God is not capricious. He's just. There's also a pattern in the Bible of God coming down to investigate sin. You remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin, God comes down. He calls out to them, where are you? They're hiding. He finds them. What have you done? He starts asking questions. In Genesis 4, Cain is cultivating bad thoughts about his brother Abel. And God sees his heart and he comes down to him and he says, Cain, what's going on in your heart, man? Something's, something's not going right. And he tells him, look, sin is after you. Don't let it have you. But he does. Cain kills his brother Abel. And when he does, God comes down and he says, Cain, what, where's your brother Abel? What have you done? In these tragic scenes, God's heart is to come near to us. He's patient. He asks questions. He gives room for people to come out of hiding to confess their sin, to turn to God, to be restored to him. God is not sitting up on high just meeting out judgment and punishment for sinful people. Not at all. God comes down. This is the gospel, that God comes down. Jesus comes down. He enters into our world. He takes on flesh. And he makes room for us to turn to him. Jesus comes announcing good news. He comes uh, warning of judgment. He comes revealing God. Let me just read this one little text from John 3 that might be familiar to you, but in light of this. Think about how God comes down on his son. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, sent him down, that whoever believes in him and sh- should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Jesus came that we might be saved. And just as he finds some who will not come to the light because they live in darkness and they think the darkness is the light, they love it. That's what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. God will go down, he will check it out, and you know what he's going to find? People that love darkness. An unrepentant, unrighteous people. Of course, they don't think, if you read in chapter 19, they don't think they're doing wrong. They think, this is, they think they're flying right side up. Some of my great, uh, my favorite phrases from Dallas Willard. He talks about how Jesus came into a world of people that thought everything was fine, thought they were flying right side up, thought that he was turning the world upside down when in reality he was trying to say, no, 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 you're upside down. I'm telling you how things go right side up. God goes to Sodom and Gomorrah and he finds the people who think they're flying right side up and they are absolutely upside down. And so God tells Abraham what's going to happen because he's pulling him into the big picture of how history is going to go. And it's going to go like this, that God is going to save a people unto himself, a people who will do righteousness and justice, as God called Abraham to do. But against, or the backdrop of that salvation will be the judgment of unrighteousness and injustice. That's a major thread that runs through the scripture. And so God is judging Sodom and Gomorrah in a temporal way as a warning to Abraham and those that would come after him. And Peter says, it's a warning to us of what will happen to the ungodly on the final day of judgment. Big plans, heavy plans. I told you about how prayer messed with my friend. Uh, It messed with me as well, just in a very different way. I too, when I got to college, I met some Christians. I got involved in this campus ministry. Uh, I went to their Bible studies. I learned things about God, but it wasn't real to me. I was just trying to investigate and understand and part of the reason it wasn't real to me is, is that a lot of things weren't real to me. I had grown up in a way in which I began to view the world as sort of like a fiction novel, right? Where, where the world was my setting, people were just characters in the, in the story that could come and go as the, as the plot needs. Circumstances were just things that drove the plot. And of course, I was the author. And so I would just write it the way I wanted it to be written. And one of the problems of living that way is if the story gets boring, you feel like it's on you to spice things up. And so I I did a litany of just really odd and strange and weird things, kind of for the sake of just spicing the story up. Time would not even allow to tell you, but I'll give you a few. One night we were studying freshman year, and uh, it was an all-nighter, and that was, of course, boring. And so I shaved my head bald, like with a big razor. I just thought that that would lighten the mood. Nothing's more boring than sleeping, right? And so I had the top bunk over my roommate, and I wanted to make that interesting. So I took the mattress off and just slept on the springs, right? So he's just looking up at my face like that. He got upset with that. So then I decided to sleep in the hatchback of my car in the parking lot at my dorm for a week. Debbie, who I just met, who I don't know why she was doing this, but would come by and like bang on the back of the glass so I could wake up and go to class. Speaking of Debbie, one night on one of our really early dates, we were out taking a walk, and we got caught in the rain, downpour of rain. We're on this trail, and so we're walking, and we come to a street pouring down rain. It's nighttime, and so I decide I'm going to go lay down on my back in the middle of the road while Debbie's just standing over there in the rain thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Why would you do that kind of stuff? It's so stupid. 
Well, if you think the world's fictitious and you think no consequences are really that real and you just want to spice things up, that's how you act. I thought it was interesting. In hindsight, I can tell you, it's the most narcissistic way to view the world. It's all about me. So what changed? Well, I went to a prayer meeting. There were like six kids there. I didn't pray. I didn't know how to do that, especially not in a group. So I just listened. And they talked to God for 45 minutes like he was real. Like he was alive and like he was present. And like in that day, he was going to do things in their life and through them and the lives of other people. And I just couldn't get past it. On my way home, I'm walking back to my dorm and I just remember saying, God, I want in. That's it. That's all I said. But God and I both knew what I meant. What I meant was, I want out of the fictional story where I'm the author, and I want into reality where you're the author, where you reign and rule over everything, and where I'm just your friend and servant. That's, I want into that. My, my conversion was born out of a longing for reality, and it hit me in the face at a prayer meeting. Prayer has a way of pulling you in. Let me ask you, what is your starting point for reality? For like what's really true and real in the world? Is it the news? Social media, like likes and retweets, is that reality for you? Your experiences, is that reality? Is it possible that we're flying upside down, but we think we're right side up? God wants to pull us into his plans because he wants to show us how to fly right side up. That's just the beginning. Look what happens next. Verse 22. The two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord stays behind, and there's Abraham just still standing before the Lord. God's making himself available. He stays back with Abe. And the text says, Abraham drew near. And we're going to see that prayer draws us, pulls us into the heart of God. God has declared himself to be our father. And as such, he makes himself available to us. Anytime, anywhere, in any condition, the children of God can come to the father. Uh, Todd read this in the, uh, in the absolution. I might butcher it a little bit, but from Hebrews 4. This, I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, like, we all lay open, bare, naked, and exposed before God. Nowhere to hide. He sees, he knows. But then he says, but we have one who came, who was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. And because that one is our high priest, meaning he stands before God, he represents us before God, he gives us access to God, he says, let us draw near. One of the great things about being a father of young children is that when you come home, they come running. Like from wherever they are in the house, whatever they're doing, they, dad! And they come running. It's awesome. There's no shame. There's no fear. There's no guilt. There's no confusion. Just sheer delight and joy and confidence. Dad's home. That's what he's saying. Let us draw near with confidence, with boldness. Let's come running into the throne room of grace. Abraham draws near to God. 
He draws near with big questions. Like he's got big questions. Some of you have big questions. Maybe about the same things. Like do you have questions about sovereignty? What does it mean that God reigns and rules over everything? Do you have questions about justice and judgment? Do you have questions about suffering? Do you have questions about grace? Those are big, big questions. And there are good answers out there, but let me say this. At the end of the day, answers in and of themselves won't satisfy your soul. They just won't. They'll help, but they won't satisfy. Like, I could explain judgment to you, and that might help you, but it won't satisfy. The only thing that satisfies at the end of the day is not that you understand why God does what he does, but that you understand who God is. At the end of the day, the question that has to be answered is, can I trust him? And to get there, you have to draw near to the heart of God. We bring our questions and concerns and our burdens to God, not just to get answers, not just to get relief, but to get God. When you get God, all that other stuff has a way of just falling into place. This is what Jesus said to the crowds who were anxious and fretting about life. He said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. People who don't know God do this. They fret about life. Because they think life consists of what they can secure for themselves. But you, you have a Father in heaven who knows what you need. And so he tells them, look, seek first God and his righteousness, his kingdom. All this other stuff will be added to you. You see what he's saying? Draw near to God. Seek him. Pray. All the other stuff take care of itself. This is the journey Abraham's on. And look where he starts. He starts with a question. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a question about justice. Now, Abraham knows that God is just. Later, he'll say, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's just? He knows God is just. But now he's dealing with this on an emotional level because this is real. When the fire comes down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham will see the smoke from his house. He will wonder about Lot. Did did my nephew Lot make it out of there? This is real life for him. And so it's emotional. He's moving past the information and he's asking the question, "Can can I trust him? And so he starts exploring. Verse 24, he says, God, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place? And not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it. And he gets pretty bold with God. Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. He doesn't give God a chance to answer. Answers for him. No, 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 of course you wouldn't do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? I mean, it's super bold, but I think God loves what is happening here. And then God's like, yeah, come on. <laughs> Bring it on. Draw near with your questions. God's not afraid of your hard questions. He loves it. He invites us in with them. And the reason is, is because he wants us to find out who he really is, what it means that he's just. He wants us to see, for instance, that he's righteous, that he is holy and pure, and good, and right in ways that you and I cannot even comprehend. The Apostle John says that God is light, and in him there's no darkness 
at all. I don't even have a category for that. When you begin to get a glimpse of the righteousness of God, you see the righteousness of God demands that sin be judged. He wants you to see that he's merciful. Look at the reason he gives Abraham for going down to Sodom. It's back back in verse 20, I think. He says he's going to go down there because of the outcry that has come to him against the sin of Sodom. And this word outcry is used usually in the case of the oppressed and the poor being neglected, being overlooked, being oppressed. And they cry out to God for justice. We tend to think that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is sexual, and it it is, but it's not just that. When Ezekiel looks back and comments on Sodom, listen to what he says. What it says their sin is. Ezekiel 16, 49, he says, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. That's their sin. They had excess of food. They had prosperous ease. But they did not care for the poor and needy. That's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had a fat life, and they didn't care about those in need around them. And God has heard the outcry because he's merciful. You see, when you get a glimpse of God's mercy, you begin to understand his mercy demands that sin be judged. Our culture, we want to put God's love against God's justice. And it just doesn't work like that. If God is to be loving, he must also be just because the outcry of the oppressed comes up to him. What a dilemma. If you come to God with questions about justice, you find yourself learning about his love. If you come to God with questions about love, you find yourself learning about his justice. I want both. But how do these work together? That's what Abraham's going to discover. Let's pick up in verse 26. Abraham has just put forth this scenario. All right, God, how about if there's 50? 50 righteous, we spare the whole city. Verse 26, God replies, okay, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Wait, really? This is like when my kids ask me for five bucks and immediately I say yes. They're like, I should have started with a higher number. I should have asked for 20. Abraham says 50, and God's like, yeah, I'll save her. Well, what? Okay, hang on. How about 45? God says, yeah, I won't destroy it if I find 45 there. Okay, how about 40? I won't destroy it if I find 40 righteous there. I think Abraham takes a walk at this point, takes a deep breath. Okay, he's in, he's in deep now. He comes back. He's like, all right. I don't want to press the issue. 30? Like 30? If you found 30 righteous there, will you save the whole wicked city? God says, yeah. If I find 30 righteous there, I won't destroy it. Okay. Okay, I'm just thinking out loud, God. What if there's 20? What if there's just 20? Suppose there's 20. And God says, yeah, no, I won't destroy the city if I find 20 righteous there. Abraham's like, oh man, okay. God, don't be angry with me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm new at this. 10? What about 10? And God, without skipping a beat, yes. If I find 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city. 
Abraham thought he was stepping out on a limb with 50. Now here he is at 10 and God hasn't flinched at all. I want you to see, he starts with a question about the justice of God and this has led into an incredible discovery about the love of God. What is it that he discovers? Abraham discovers this principle that the righteousness of a few could save the wicked many. There's lots of examples in Scripture how the sin of someone can affect the whole community. Joshua 7, as an example, Achan steals some stuff that he wasn't supposed to steal, hides it in his tent, lies about it. Not only is he put to death, but him, his family, all his animals, his tent, it's all burned up. So they had this concept that the sin of one could be transferred, or the guilt of it could be transferred to many. But what Abraham's discovering is that this could work in reverse. The righteousness of a few, maybe even one, could be transferred to the many. But he stops at 10. Oh, dude, you're on a roll. Why'd you stop at 10? Let's go 9, let's go 8, let's figure this out. He stops at 10, and nobody knows why. People have speculations, like maybe he didn't want to press his luck. Maybe he thought 10 was safe. I bet there's 10 righteous there. We're good. Maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe he thought, what am I even talking about? Righteous. Who's righteous before God? What does it matter? I don't know. Whatever the case is, I think this says something about how we're to read the story of Abraham in general. Because this sentence sort of ends with an ellipsis, right? There's like, there's a blank that's left to be filled in. It's unfinished. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, and everything that God does in Abraham and through Abraham is like that. It's all unfinished. It all points to something else. It all leaves a blank to be filled in, and Jesus fills in the blank. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who would finally come and do righteousness and justice. He is the only one righteous who saves the wicked from judgment. Jesus fills in the blank. The witness of Scripture is that there's none righteous. Romans 3, not one. Nobody understands. Nobody gets it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But listen, here's the good news from Peter. Yes, that, but Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Paul, 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? He's the righteous one. He knew no sin. He made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John, I just want you to see, everybody says it. John, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. This is the heart of God, that his justice and mercy should come together on the cross of Christ. That the wrath and the judgment that we deserve because of our sin would be poured out on him, and the life and blessing that he deserves because of his righteousness would be transferred to us. How deep the Father's love. How vast beyond all measure that he would send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. 
Here's the last thing, and I'll be brief about this. Not only does prayer pull us into the plans of God, we get to see the world as it really is. And not only does prayer pull us into the heart of God, we get to see him as he really is. Prayer pulls us into the work of God, the mission of God, the activity of God. Uh, Tim Keller points out that what's going on here is that Abraham is priesting. The official role of high priest doesn't exist yet, but one of the functions of the high priest was to intercede on behalf of the people. And so when Peter says in the New Testament that we are a royal priesthood, he's saying we've been brought into this function to intercede for people. Uh, Jesus, right now, our high priest, is described as interceding for us. He prays continually for us right now. And we've been brought into that work. See, we think of prayer as something you do before you get to work. But in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of priests, praying is working. When you pray, you are caught up in the work and the mission of God. The thing you have to do is just to pray. Just to start doing it. I think sometimes we feel like we've got to be like, inspired. No, I'm hardly ever inspired to pray. I'm inspired to do lots of things, but that's not one of them. 99% of the time when I pray, it's because I had to make a decision that right now I'm going to pray. But I make the decision because I want to be part of the work of God, and praying is working. Some of you feel like, okay, but I got all this crap in my life. I can't come to God like that. Wrong. God has given you access through his son, Jesus. Draw near with boldness and confidence. Some of you think, I don't know what to say. Great. God has taken care of that too. Listen to Romans 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God paraphrase. You can come to God not knowing what to say, and somehow the Spirit is going to take that jumbled mess of words and turn it into prayer according to the will of God. How good is that? The thing is, you got to just pray. you got to start getting the words out. Prayer is just talking to the Father through the Son, based on His merit in your place, and by the power of the Spirit, who takes your words and turns them into beautiful words of prayer to God. Let me give you one thing you can do, all right? Uh, this is not a sermon where you feel bad because you need to pray more. It's a sermon where you feel like, I want to pray more. Here's one thing you can do. At 3.30 on Sundays, which I know is 40 minutes before most of you get here to church, but at 3.30, we sit in this little room back here called the Friendship Room, and we pray. We pray for God's blessing upon this service and over the kids and everything that's happening here. Any of you can join us. I would be happy to move out of that room and into the other room and into this room someday praying for this service. Anybody can come. 3.30. We pray for like 10, 15 minutes. You don't even have to say anything. You could just be there and be part of the work of God on Sundays. There's this story about this young preacher who came to this church his first Sunday. Preached a sermon. After church, one of the men of the congregation came up to him and he said, you're not a very strong preacher. And in the usual order of things, you will fail here. But a little group of us has decided that we're going to start meeting on Sunday mornings to pray for God's blessing upon you. 
And that little group, over time, turned into a thousand people meeting on Sunday mornings to pray for this, this preacher. That little group, those faithful prayers underpinned the ministry of J. Wilbur Chapman, who you don't know, but is one of the great preachers in recent American history. Had an incredibly fruitful ministry. Many, many, many people came to faith through his preaching. And he wasn't a great preacher. I'm afraid you're faced with a similar situation. And I beckon you, 3.30, come pray for your preachers. What would happen if we became convinced that praying was working? What might God want to show us? What might he want to teach us about himself? What might he do through us? There is only one way to find out. You got to just pray. Let's do that now. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.